Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devi Kagirish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. Recently, I was at the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland, where I participated in a fascinating experimental event called The Future of Attention, curated by Rafael Dernbach, a researcher at the Università della Svizzera Italiana. It was a continuous 24-hour live talk moderated by three hosts, including yours truly, and involving a new guest each hour. The event began at noon on August 10th and went on all the way to noon on August 11th. Attendees were invited to sit, lounge, or even sleep in the audience whenever they wished. The idea was not just to discuss the workings of attention in contemporary film and media culture, but also to actively experience and challenge the various ways in which we pay attention over a sustained period of time. I hope you've been following along the last two weeks as we've shared excerpts from my hosting shift at the event, featuring conversations with filmmaker Helena Whitman, curator Giovanni Carmine, artist Hito Styrel, among others. Our final episode is with a guest who has a job like no other. It's Kevin Beely, professor for the future of cinema and the audiovisual arts at the Locarno Film Festival and USI. Kevin joined me to close out the 24-hour event with a fascinating discussion on how labor, pleasure, and knowledge relate to the special state of attention that we call cinema. We hope you enjoy the conversation and make sure to go to filmcomment.com slash podcast to check out all the other episodes in this series. I'd like to bring on our next guest, Kevin B. Lee. Thanks, Devika. And I also want to bring on briefly because uh, I think Hito wanted to just have a quick exchange. R.S. Amaral Satanasiu, the author of Speculative Communities, because oh, yeah. uh, I think Hito, you had wanted to come to his um, session last evening, but uh, the timing didn't work out. So, and hi, Hito. <laughs> um, I don't want to sort of steal the limelight here, and I have to. I was planning on coming earlier, but my span of attention, something happened there, and I, uh, I thought uh, I got the time mixed up. So there we go. Um, so. I just wanted to share a quick sort of thought and ask Hito a question, if that's okay. And I think it's a good bridge with what you were just talking about, your work that is shown here. And some of the themes that we were talking about last night, about um, we were talking about the uh, sort of binary between attention and distraction and whether or not the right question to ask is, you know, uh, should we mourn the loss of our attention uh, and uh, min- uh, and fight against distractions? Or should we ask the question, what are we distracted from? and uh, Or where, where are we focusing our attention? The object to- of our attention. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we had a really nice discussion yesterday. We, we kind of moved towards celebrating what we were talking about as creative distraction. Um, you know, there's this capitalist term, creative destruction, but perhaps there is a creative destruction that we can work towards. And, and to come to Hito's work, I, I, uh, uh, 
I mean, I'm a sociologist and I've, I've been trying to kind of work on what the politics of distortion and distraction can be. What is the generative possibility of those practices? And there's only so much I can uh, work with ideas. Uh, and there is a work of representation and image that uh, the work of Hito, I think, does so brilliantly uh, and goes much deeper than I think ideas can go. Uh, and so I, the thought I had when I was watch or when I experienced your um, the, the film, the installation, Social Sim, was very much about how we can occupy, inhabit that space of distraction in a way that is imaginative, that is frivolous, um, enjoyable, uh, and that these are elements that are kind of missing from our kind of politics and from... And, and, I, and I was thinking that you know, if you look at the dictionary, distraction means uh, disruption, but also uh, mania and uh, um, frenzy. And there's a history of denigrating uh, social movements and cr as crowd behavior, as being, you know, m manic, crazy. And I just, I, I just was thinking, uh, I, I was wondering. Yeah, then Hito, you mentioned earlier. You know, it's not about showing where to focus. You know, you should focus here, you should focus there. And I was thinking, you know, all these politics of very regressive, um, you know, conspiracy theorists and, uh, you know, QAnon and, you know, Trumpism and all this, you know, it, it's, it's probably, we can't really tell, it's, the, it's not sufficient to tell folks, focus not on lies, but focus on the truth. Here is the truth. And I was wondering if we could be working with uh, exposing people to your work more, you know, maybe that's, uh, or, or works that work with not instructing you where to focus, but taking you on a journey of distraction uh, and creative distraction. So I'm just wondering, you know, wh whether you see your work as playing, uh, whether the politics of, of, of your work, um, you know, I mean, I see it as an antidote to, to, to the regressive distraction. So I just wonder w whether you share this or whether that, yeah, you have any thoughts? Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for the comment. I just finished your book this morning. I thought it was fascinating. But I think, you know, the, and I think the question that you are asking is these new communities which are united by being distracted together, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like BTS fan armies, for example, which I think are super fascinating as a, as a case study in the way they are organized slash disorganized and still manage to intervene into real life situations. Um, how to, you know, um, how to think about them not only as agents of mischief, which they mostly are, um, but also to deploy them as agents of more productive change. And I think that's a huge um, challenge. It's a huge task ahead. I was also thinking, you know, I mean, just in recent months, we had so many new examples of this kind of crowd politics, for example, the Games, GameStop investment uh, movement, for example, that sort of took on the hedge funds by populist investment. I thought that was a very fascinating example. Ultimately, maybe also failed. I don't know. 
uh, also the whole NFT craze or the crypto boom, let's put it like that, was also an eruption of this kind of new partly financialized crowd politics. And for now, I don't have any sort of answers or clues, you know, on how to um, basically try to think about these in a more progressive way, but I'm really just trying to understand what they are and um, and how they arise. It's more for me a, a question of fluid dynamics, really a physical question of particles and forces acting on particles than anything else, and which are not really captured by traditional attempts to understand politics. But I think this is really the, the next important question, you know, how to try to integrate these kind of not really spontaneous movements, but very chaotic ones uh, into pro progressive politics. Thank you, Hito. Um, it's funny, we've been having this back and forth with your uh, assistant about the, your next appointment. And she's, she said, actually, uh, you could stay a bit longer uh, if you'd like. Um, so, Devika, I think we can <laughs> proceed with the conversation. Soldier on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'd love to, uh, you know, go from what you just shared, because you brought in the word pleasure, which we've sort of returned to over the course of this long conversation. When we talk about attention, we are often talking about pleasure, too. I mean, we pay attention to things that give us pleasure, I think. Um, but there is also, a, there are different kinds of pleasure, and, you know, some are maybe, some are productive, and others are not productive, and Kevin, I was wondering whether you could jump in here. Um, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations about, uh, specifically within the world of cinema, there is this um, traditionalism, you know, regarding the classical cinema experience. You, of course, work with all kinds of, uh, and research new ways of experiencing images, experiencing time. And there is a rigid, often prejudice against those you know, within the world of cinema, within like film culture, within the world of film festivals. But there's also a, a, a critique that, that comes from a more structural place of the new technologies and, you know. And I think that does have to do with pleasure and leisure. And this idea that there's an aspect of instant gratification that is built into a lot of new technologies that actually changes the way we experience pleasure. Um, and in which that, you know, maybe we are not, I don't know, fully aware of uh, the potentials of pleasure that you are referring to, the, the potential of pleasure to catalyze something, uh, to catalyze like a rupture. And I, I don't know, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about, you know, technology with respect to good or bad pleasures, to put it really broadly. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, when I think about pleasure with cinema, I actually think about your podcast, and this is why I, I lobbied <laughs> to um, have you invited to Locarno, because uh, for those who don't know, Devika is the co-host of uh, really my favorite film podcast. It's the Film Comment Podcast, produced by the Film Society of Lincoln Center in New York. 
and I listen to you and the way you talk about film, both deeply informed from a film historical standpoint, but also from a social and uh, political standpoint, which honestly, if we want to talk about pleasure, uh, 25 years ago uh, or even 20 years ago, when I was in my peak cinephilia mode and I was just nerding out on top 10 lists and uh, everything I could get my hands on through uh, DVDs and also file sharing networks, um, honestly, this was my way of excusing myself from political conversations. I was just like, I was just having too much of a 9-11, you know, what do we do? Uh, you know, George Bush and the Iraq war. And so I really saw cinema as a refuge from having to deal with that, that unpleasurable dimension of uh, contemporary life and politics. And what's really changed for me from what I observe I mean, Hito, maybe you never had this problem. I think you've done a very successful job of, of integrating the political and the artistic in a way that can be both enjoyable, but also provocative. And we'll be talking about that more in this afternoon. But uh, Playful, too. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, and maybe this is something we can talk about later this afternoon of what, what does, well, I think you, you, you brought in your question, what role does playfulness have in engaging um, politically with the problems of our world and in such a way that doesn't feel contradictory or, uh, or uh, hypocritical even. But uh, back to you, Devika, <laughs> because uh, I mean, just, it, I think it speaks maybe to your generation. Now I'm gonna make myself sound really old, which maybe I am, but maybe it's a generational orientation that um, those who have had to grow up in the last 10 years or so are just much more sensitive and aware and um, unable to uh, disentangle or s uh, separate um, the realm of art and cinema with the realm of politics. And so I, I, I listened to your uh, podcast with a deep sense of admiration and, and envy to some extent that uh, the ability to have a conversation at that level um, is really remarkable. Um, but it also does raise the question of how much of what we experience as art and entertainment is uh, informational, that one has to be informed uh, and, and situate themselves within a certain field of knowledge in order to function properly as a viewer, if that makes any sense. Um, that somehow if I'm not um, situated within a particular context of knowledge, then I'm not functioning properly within certain social discourses, like I'm, I'm, I don't understand what's going on on Twitter, for example. And so uh, it really, you know, and, and this connects to my own background with video essays. And video essays were a way of bringing or foregrounding knowledge of film into the cinematic experience. Maybe knowledge, has all, knowledge in the form of conversations has always been a key role in our experience of art. We can't Really can we really understand art if we don't have the occasion to talk about it, to process it? And I think that conversation has really been foregrounded through media, through your podcast, through video essays. Uh, but then it's a question of, are we putting the cart in front of the horse, per se? Like, if we remove those conversations and that knowledge, as pleasurable as they are and as, as, as enriching as they are, then um, how, does, how does art, you know, exist? I think this is more of the 1960s... Uh, high modernist argument that the, the artwork, you know, stands autonomously on its own and we have to be confronted with its uh, almost innate unknowability or it's, it's that it, it's always uh, something beyond words or beyond description. And we've done so much in the last uh, 50 years to, in many ways, dismantle that because that, that kind of 
hushed awe of silence is actually also silencing many subjectivities, many voices, many perspectives that might be able to contr contribute something useful to the conversation. So it's really uh, shifted the relationship between artist and audience. I mean, what Hita was saying earlier that when she's making a film, you said it, it's not just about the image, it's also the cinematographer and how much they're getting paid and this whole mm. context. So, I mean, what you're getting to is also there is maybe pleasure in encountering an art object as this unknowable, self-contained, ineffable thing. But then we have to deal with the fact that, you know, it is created it is a product of labor and structural realities and capital. So how do we talk about that? which I guess is considered like unsexy maybe, yeah. you know, and that it, it gets into the realm of information. And how do we talk about that while retaining this sense of wonder and awe toward art? But I don't think that they are mutually no. as separable as, as they are often presented. Yeah, so this is really where foreground and background, behind the scenes and in front of the curtain uh, start to, uh, how do I say, that, that boundary gets dissolved. And I'm saying this uh, with the other hat I'm wearing which is being mindful of Hito's schedule because she is my, my designated guest. I got to invite exactly one person to the Locarno Film Festival and invited Hito, so thank you, Hito, for accepting. But uh, then, uh, then the festival's like, oh, Hito, Cheryl's coming to town. Let's pack her schedule as fully as possible. <laughs> so we want to acknowledge the labor that you are performing. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to perform this labor in a beautiful setting as Locarno, but uh, you have a podcast that you now have to go to and I, I want to no I, I, I think it's important this because is the uh, most elegant sending off <laughs> it's the most <laughs> elegant sending of yeah and there's there's definitely a lot of uh, how do you say pleasurable exhaustion in the midst of us because some of you have actually stayed for the entire 24 hours which is I, I hope we have some kind of leopard for you uh, golden leopard for you um, because I because afterwards you have to have lunch and then after lunch, we have our conversation. So, you know, these, these things are, are, we can't just kind of imagine that these things uh, happen kind of magically. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I feel responsible for your, <laughs> your wellness for the first of the day. Otherwise, it's going to be on your <laughs> so, mind. So we'll see you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so yeah. thank much. You, <laughs> okay, thank you, Aris. Um, yeah, and, and along those lines, uh, you know, since this is the last session of the day, um, I think it's definitely worth acknowledging this production. I mean, this this has definitely been a production in its own. Um, this event seems designed to, at least to me, uh, to draw attention to draw attention to the labor of attention, to the labor of performance. I mean, that's why, and to also find pleasure in it. Mm. You know, um, but it's also there is an endurance aspect to it, right? I mean, this is what I'm, I'm finding interesting, and I return to this theme throughout, you know, the sessions I've been moderating is that there is something deeply rewarding about displeasure or um, being, I don't know, there's something rewarding about discipline, to put it very simply. Mm. So there is something rewarding about, I'm sure, for people who've been here all night to experience the discomfort of this. Mm. And maybe that's very simple. Maybe what I'm getting at is something as simple as finishing a task, like a feeling of accomplishment, a feeling of completionism. But that is, is something that, you know, when you, when we talk about attention and distraction, 
there is something that feels very proper almost or, or very deeply fulfilling about subjecting yourself to something that isn't easy, mm. that isn't convenient. And I think that when we're talking about technology and pleasure, maybe sometimes we are mixing up convenience with pleasure as well. It's just made me think more deeply about what pleasure really means. I mean, I've, you know, this is like my fourth hour doing yeah. it. It has not been consistently pleasurable. You know, it, it, it is like really hot for one and I'm tired and dehydrated. <laughs> but it is also deeply pleasurable in another way to like, to experience like how the body responds to something like mm. this, you know, and to, to subject oneself to something that is challenging but is is maybe transformative in some way mm. um and the thing is that this has become a bit of a normative uh practice in contemporary media especially i mean i think the uh, one of the inspirations for this event was uh twitch 24-hour live streamers uh rafael is nodding his head and, and we should definitely acknowledge rafael dernbach's uh, efforts in um conceiving of this and mobilizing the uh, the entire festival to uh, support it. Uh, they there definitely was initial pushback. Uh, just like this this uh, idea sounded so crazy and uh, unreasonable, but then that also planted a seed of curiosity. It's like, oh, it is crazy and unreasonable. Why not try it out? And here we are. Um, I also but I also want to acknowledge um, Raphael's family um, because it, this is an important thing to acknowledge that uh, Yasmin Grimm. Uh, is in the audience, and she is a curator, and their child, oh, are they upstairs in the in the baby room, I think? And their child, Nouriel, is here. So, you know, it, it definitely involves uh, many, hey, there she is, hi! <laughs> and apparently, Nouriel inspired the whole experiment with attention, because uh, toddlers uh, do that. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> We're, we've been sharing a flat during the festival, and just seeing Nouriel, you know, just just the most primal uh, basic stage of human life and human being and just this attention machine that's just craving and, and really for its own survival yeah. needs the attention of others. Right. And and how much have we evolved from that, you know, in our current state? Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, Kevin, I want to ask you a little about your field of work and your job here, which I, I love saying your title, <laughs> the professor of the future of cinema. Uh, no that's, one an else. that's a real attention grabber, isn't it? <laughs> it's an attention. No one else has this job. Uh, it's a one-of-a-kind job. Uh, a heavy responsibility, I must say. But um, what I find really so compelling about your work and talking with you about your work is that you are able to negotiate these two sides of the coin, which is there is a necessary skepticism we must have about new media and technology because a lot of it is very corporate funded and monopolized and you know it is true that for something like tiktok is deploying algorithms that are built to you know incentivize like a certain dopamine rush they're built to incentivize like spending lots of time scrolling and that is you know directly related to profit you know how Instagram or TikTok works. And that is like changing human behavior in, in a very significant way that I think requires some skepticism. But at the same time, you, you are able, able to bring that skepticism with also a historical view of technology, that new technology, you know, that 
a lot of people romanticize old technology, older ways of, for instance, watching films that were also never free of these systemic considerations, right? Mm. So I'm curious about how you um, do that and how you bring a sense of optimism, you know, and a sense of cynicism, <laughs> right? Because I think the view that you have, the kind of nuanced view that you have requires both because you have an optimism about the possibilities presented by uh, new ways of seeing and doing things. And that optimism comes from a cynicism about the history of of media forms, knowing that things were never as rosy or simple as we have thought they were. So could mm. you talk about that a little? Sure. I mean, I can talk about it from the perspective of my teaching. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is a strange kind of protean job because it's a job that is um, divided more or less equally between the university where I teach, the Universitas Italiana, and the Locarno Film Festival, uh, which are in neighboring cities. Um, I'm still kind of finding my role in the film festival, and uh, this is the first, fest the first edition of the festival in which I had a, a role to play, and the 24-hour conversation, which Raphael has instigated, is really part of this um, direction that uh, I, I certainly wish for the festival to take, of having having conversation like these where we can just have a chance, have a forum, have an environment to make sense of a mediatic environment that um, surrounds cinema and to some extent may con be consuming cinema or dare I say replacing cinema, I know, and what do we think about that? So I, I really think that this is Quote something- from the professor of the future Well, it's, it's speculative, it's speculative, yeah. Um, I mean, well, if you want to talk about future of the cinema or, or future of cinema, um, I, I honestly don't know how much of a future cinema has, but what I would put my emphasis on is how cinema can influence the future, if you want to think of it that way. Like the experience that we understand and that we value as cinema, how do we preserve that um, if, if possible in forms that may not normally be recognized as cinema, social media, virtual reality, metaverse, or whatever else we haven't even invented yet. Um, just, and, and in doing so, have a clearer, um, more articulate understanding of what this thing cinema is exactly. I mean, I think a lot of people have and still continue to attach it to a dark um, enclosed space with an audience and a screen, um, okay. Uh, one could argue that that's true, but uh, I think for me it's more about a heightened state of attention, concentration, and I think that's why we wanted to have this talk on 24 hours of attention, because it's many ways uh, asking ourselves um, what kind of attentional states can we have that cinema has accomplished throughout its history, um, but may maybe passing its torch to other mediatic forms. Uh, what kind of states of attention do we want to wish for the new forms of attentional states in the future? Um, and then that can sort of lead to my teaching activities. Uh, I'm the only professor of film in my university. 
there is no film department. So that's a kind of a funny place to situate a professor for the future of cinema. But I guess if there's no cinema history classes being offered, then <laughs> I can we go straight into the future. I can just go straight into the future. And my, my students don't study film. They're in um, communications, marketing, media studies, Italian studies. So um, that kind of allows me to have a field of non-specialists and non-cinephiles, which I find in some ways refreshing and more interesting to, to ask the question of what cinema means to them. We do this exercise where they spend a whole week um, recording every hour of media that they've consumed. So, so for a whole week, whether it's a YouTube or a TikTok or a movie or, or something on Netflix, they have to log their time. So, uh, and so, you know, I, I, the way I put it is like, well, this is what Instagram and Google are already doing to you. So you might as well be aware so of it log yourself. log everything that they consume? They, I, I uh, only require them to log the total number of minutes or hours. Oh, okay. Not, okay. not every single thing. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I also yeah, have a... There's an app for that. There's an app for that. Yeah, yeah and they probably <laughs> use that uh, to do their homework. Um, what I can tell you is that from this semester's results with, uh, I think, about 40 students, uh, YouTube averaged about five hours a week per student. Yeah, think about that. Think about your own media consumption habits and how they would break down. Uh, but what was interesting about YouTube was that uh, two of those five hours were just uh, listening to music on YouTube, which raises the question of why do you listen to music on YouTube as opposed to Spotify? And then they answer, well, I don't want to pay for Spotify or, or Spotify ads are more annoying than YouTube ads. Um, but then it also got you thinking, well, if you use YouTube for music, if you put your music on YouTube, do you also use YouTube as music? And what I mean by this is that a lot of uh, students use um, things like a five-hour um, back uh, a compilation of all the background shots of Dune um, looped for five hours with Hans Zimmer's um, more like low-key music, just as a almost like as a audiovisual screensaver playing on their laptops while they do their homework. So there's, there are all these different applications for YouTube that are evolving constantly um, that lead to the question of, yeah, what is watching? What is listening? What is attention? How is, how is media being used? And does that, this have anything to do with cinema? Um, probably you would think no, because uh, given what I just said about cinema, my, my wish for cinema creating a special state of attention that we don't experience in everyday life However, you know, people have gone, especially in certain countries, you just go to the cinema to hang out. And actually, like, the movie is just a background thing for you to just be among your friends. So, you know, it's, it's just a way of provoking different conversations and considerations of what cinema is, where it is, and how it works in our lives. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Do you think that there is something inherently political to the state of attention facilitated by our traditional concept of cinema that we are at risk of losing? 
are you are you talking that more from like the industry side because the industry is certainly you know very I'm, anxious about I'm where... every side i mean it, i i'm curious how you would answer that i mean politically from an industry side mm. um politically i guess from the point of view of the social experience mm. or maybe something more existential i mean mm. some people believe that you know that kind of extended state of attention is increasingly rare due to the way the market works so there is something like spiritual and therefore radical about submitting yourself to to that state of attention mm. um although you know i mean i think that's interesting too because i don't think cinema has always been viewed that way i mean when people first started going to the theaters it was like a pretty commercial maybe even a cheap thing you know mm. it was um something that yeah. the lower class uh, right did. and was also this kind of a third space that concept of you know between your office your workspace and your home space to find this other space of uh, potential or possible existence and that takes many forms you know whether it's like teenagers uh using the space for romantic encounters you know d- dating or whatever and uh or or um people just wanting to you know in new york city when i would go to late night screenings i would just i was always struck by at least uh, several homeless people living in the you know yeah. well yeah freudian slip living in the back row um so you know the the kind of function that that provides yeah. i mean um, goodbye dragon in is a nice Since we've been talking about Simon Liang <laughs> so much that's a good example of all the activities that coale- can coalesce around a theater because right. the theater is it's not just a screen it's also a building it's a building with air conditioning or mm-hmm. eating sometimes crucial in a new york city summer yeah. i remember this uh yeah i mean it's like a space beyond the projector and the screen right yeah. um and at the same time i think this came up in a one of the early conversations of this 24 hour marathon i think it was with abby sun where she was talking about you know when you're in china or in perhaps india or other countries as well you it's not just one screen you've got you know people checking their screens constantly and not even um apologizing for it because it's just a normal practice so that's just um you know and that's uh just something to do with how screens relate to each other in that particular cultural context But I guess this raises for me this raises the question of right if there's so many different applications and so many ways of being within the cinema space if we can recognize that kind of diversity then the question is how do these different modes uh coexist you know if you have like the noisy kids uh talking back to the screen uh or 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 um checking their phones with others who are trying to achieve a full state of of um of attention and concentration and this to me is what makes cinema the, the cinema theater such a special and unique space for social co-presence mm. that strange this i mean think of how many spaces can you think of that where strangers people who don't know each other willingly occupy the same space inches away from each other right yeah. and they on the one hand they're having a shared experience they're generally being faced with the same image and the same uh work being projected on the screen but they're all having different experiences of it based on their own subjective response and they're also experiencing different states of distraction uh which then can produce the potential for conflict for for resentment for argument but it it forces us to coexist with each other right. and that's so missing 
uh, that's been so missing in the last 10 or 15 years or so of um, a society that is increasingly consumed by our personal devices, by social media. And so, um, so for me, this is really what cinemas can continue to provide. They can continue to help us engineer this ongoing social experiment of mutual co-presence. Um, maybe that's a bit utopian. Um, I mean, it's not, and I don't know, maybe this is a justification for like, governments to fund cinemas <laughs> like our society depends on it because it's how this is where we learn to like be comfortable with each other's uh spaces and our strangeness yeah. but uh i i do think this is worth considering yeah i mean the question that i always confront is is you know how important is my cinephilia and uh and so the next question is how important is cinema because often when we're having these conversations we're talking with people who like cinema for their own idiosyncratic reasons. So we could have a talk like this among like people who work with literature or any other art form, and there is this desire to situate it as something essential for the survival of society in some way. But often are we just like building a framework of justification for our pleasures, mm. you know? Yeah, it's really the question of how this cinephilia can project outward and uh, engage with a public um, that may not be as invested with cinema as, as much as you and I are, but it, it does feel like um, somewhat of a responsibility. Like if we, if we owe something to our own passion of cinema, it should be our ability to relate it to others, right? Yes, that's a good way of I mean, I mean, who are you doing your podcast for? Is it for fellow cinephiles or do you, do you imagine an audience it's something I truly wonder. I mean, I wonder because often we are talking about pretty niche things. We did a podcast, I think you know, with uh, Nathaniel Dorsky mm. and Jerome Heiler, who are avant-garde filmmakers, whose films, like, you can... There are so, such rare opportunities to see those films, especially if you don't live in a place like New York, where there's anthology film archives. I mean, their films are not available digitally. They screen now rarely. Mm. And I did wonder, um, who is this for? And I also had this experience, actually, of going uh, to this sort of uh, arts criticism workshop for a couple of weeks where I was the only film critic. Hmm. And everyone else was, there were theater critics and arts reporters and a lot of people who were writing for uh, local American newspapers from small towns. And I really had this experience of realizing that no one understood my references. Hmm. You know, and I was like, I'm so used to talking just to cinephiles in New York all the time. And my world is tiny. And we walk around in New York thinking that this is the world. And our world is tiny. We are irrelevant, you know, mm -hmm. ultimately. So we get a good listenership on the podcast. But I'm also, it just made me very aware of um, the inflated importance we give to our passions. You know, our attention can feel like the alibi for like the world's attention and how do we and something i deal with all the time is like how important are the movies i love the movies obviously that's why i work with them but are they more sometimes the way we talk about cinema it's almost like cinema is not more important than like certain material realities of life and um even when we i mean films are really expensive to make and i do wonder sometimes if is it even worth spending all this money? In the film industry, there's a lot of money that goes into the film industry. Oh, yeah. You know? So even thinking about, like, when you think about redistribution, 
you know, of, of wealth and thinking about how, yeah, what things should be prioritized in society. And it's not just film, it's art in general. And there's, of course, something to be said about valuing things that are not related to survival. But, you know, that, that feels some, somewhat radical in itself, that film, uh, things that are just related to pleasure. Mm. But there's also maybe a reactionary component to that. Mm. Um, yeah, okay, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. <laughs> Sorry. But well, the one my thing that stays in my mind, my well, seeing you uh, just gives me all these memories of my time in New York. I live in New York throughout the 2000s, and that was my peak cinephile mode when I was going to MoMA and Museum of Moving Image and Lincoln Center and Film Forum and, you know, six other cinemas I could name. Um, but it was also the time where social media was emerging, YouTube, Facebook. This is when I started making video essays. And there was one day in the New York City subway when I saw this poster of the new Adam Sandler movie. It was called, uh, directed by Judd Apatow, called Funny People. Uh, not so funny, but uh, some, some guy had scribbled above uh, Adam Sandler and the other actors on this poster. These people get paid millions of dollars to be less funny than your own friends. And... This almost feels almost like a prophetic statement because what's happened in the time since this graffiti is that, yeah, um, people and their friends have had greater uh, agency, technology, support, and, and um, social media platforms to, to be funny yeah. and um, to, be, to prove that they're funnier than mil millionaires in Hollywood. And this has thoroughly disrupted the industry in many respects. Um, you know, like now we've had YouTube, now we have uh, TikTok is really like the most potent and intense manifestation of this. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I think that we um, we're facing a bit of a, a sea change. It's a question of do these different um, levels of or well, maybe not even levels, but just let's just call them different spheres of media production. Uh, involving, on one hand, involving um, an elite, <laughs> a mediatic elite, if we want to call it that, but maybe this this will sound like a dated term in a few years yeah. because there's also an elite growing within social media as well. Um, but let's just say an old school and a new school. Mm. And how will these coexist or will the new school, just because it just seems so economically more efficient, more cost-effective for people to just like willingly perform the labor of having fun and producing fun for others uh, just for the sake of going viral. And that's, that, that's their compensation. It's not actual, you know, um, significant income for, for the majority of people, right. significant income uh, from doing this work, but just uh, getting, attention, getting attention from others. Um, this certainly benefits TikTok and Meta and, uh, and Google uh, much more than it probably benefits the, the people producing the, the content, at least monetarily. And so this is a business model that just is just much more efficient at enriching those uh, running the, the show as opposed to Hollywood, which is, has a much higher uh, degree of, of cost. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the, the media industry in like five or 10 years now is going to be very different. And again, I, I, I say all this looking, being inside of a film festival uh, and thinking like, what role will film festivals have in this? And uh, 
should film festivals be more engaged with these emerging platforms if that's where a lot of the the, the creative energies the the innovation as well as the money for that matter um i should acknowledge that basecamp is a is a, a special space that is not cinephile centric uh it's a space that uh, where young creatives from different backgrounds in visual arts in sculpture in um virtual design and film are commingling and uh, so cuz because what you were saying about your residency experience yeah really begs the question of to what extent do we need to be exposed to perspectives outside of uh what we are most familiar with or what we most strongly identify yeah. with and the Carnot Film Festival is asking itself that question and right. so Basecamp is its own version of having that kind of uh you know to some extent uncomfortable but just but in many ways necessary um exposure to a world beyond cinema. Yeah, and I think that social media has actually you would think that it would help with that exposure to, you know, other worlds, but I think in my experience it has reinforced the inwardness of these mm. communities. Mm. You know, and it's part of why I think I felt that difference so starkly when I went to this residency this feeling that wait a minute like my entire world is composed of things that make sense to a very small group of people it's because i log on to twitter and it's just the self selecting group of and and then you think that like everyone you encounter even people you don't right. know online are just talking to you yeah you know and social media is designed to be that way you know you see the things that you want to see in a certain sense like that's how algorithms I assume work they give you what you what you see feeds the algorithm so you see more of it um and you know I think that is also um something that we've been talking about it with respect to like the in person experience and the virtual experience what I've been trying to kind of grapple with I guess is like to shed the um like language of nostalgia that comes so easily like we we say very easily well there's nothing like the in person experience but like can mm. we name what is nothing like it? like what is precisely irreplaceable about it what is re- irreplaceable about cinema no Or just the about... in person experience oh the in person experience you know, i mean like we were now very used to saying like there's nothing like it you need... but what precisely is it well i don't want to you know pin it down too much i think uh, so much of what makes it special is that it is ineffable um i mean i i i had the privilege of producing a short um a short video for the piazza grande it was a series of postcards from the future where filmmakers like alexander sokorov the dad lapid each were invited to make a short video postcard of about 4 minutes uh articulating their vision of the of the future and um for myself i kind of imagine what the piazza grande might look like in the future i found a a 3d model online um of of the piazza grande and i used that for the ba- as the basis of a a virtual tour of a metaverse version of the piazza grande and then um so last night it was projected inside the piazza grande So I got to see like a virtual version of the Piazza Grande inside and this only makes sense. Yeah, would have. Yeah, right. Bonjour, I would have had a field day. If only he was around. And the th- you know, it occurred to me that this only could make sense in that one moment. One I had one shot to show that in the Piazza Grande on this giant screen. Um 
and it's gone. Like I don't think it will ever resonate as strongly as it. You know, it it can it continues as a digital file. People, you know, I can distribute it, but it will never have the same impact as it did in that moment. Like we even tried to capture it on Instagram with, and photos couldn't even do it justice. So there's just something about the ineffable. I mean, that's a very cliche word in many ways, but uh, I mean, that's why we go to music festivals. That's why we go to um, art festivals. But um, yeah. I think from everything that we've been talking and like me trying to like get at this question, I do think it comes down to collectivity in some way. Oh yeah. Right? Like that ineffable aspect is also about experiencing something with other people, maybe anonymous, you know, who you are anonymous to. And uh, I always somehow return, when I think about the collective experience of cinema, you know, for a period of time in India in the 70s, and I mean, I think this happened in many countries, um, before, you know, the age of like internet pornography, there were certain theaters in the oh, yeah. cities, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of this trend of like, where they would splice in like hardcore porn into <laughs> just like, a movie right and people would know which theaters these were and which showtime so people would go and just sit collectively and so just like in the middle of this like normal narrative film there's like 15 minutes of hardcore porn and everyone's just you know like a hundred people are just sitting next to each other in this dark room like inches from each other just getting turned on and i was reading these um oral histories of some scholars who've done field research uh, in such theaters, some of, some of which still existed, you know, in the 90s. And, you know, they, they would describe seeing policemen sitting in the back room, you know, and why, oh. yeah, enjoying this, like, completely illegal spectacle. But to me, somehow, this maybe strange transgressive space seems like the essential space of cinema. I mean... Why would you go to ex- watch porn with a hundred people? Like you could like look at a magazine at home. It's supposed to be like a private act. But there is something mm. about experiencing a private act mm. in public with other people. Mm. I mean, it's not just like porn or sex. It's like there's something about experience experiencing privacy mm. among others and this shared privacy. Right and transgression. That's a that's a really key word because it reminds me of something I learned. Um, watching Alexander Sokolov's Postcard from the Future, uh, which was actually a postcard written um, from him in 2022 to him from 1979. So he's writing to the the version of himself when he came to the Locarno Film Festival for the first time, saying, uh, wow, you, you will not realize what it was like to go to Locarno Film Festival and see teenagers and students sleeping outside along the lake uh, as just their way of occupying the festival because, and it's funny because the joke is like this festival, it's one of the most exclusive and really um, cost prohibitive festivals in the world. So it's it's basically um, pricing out its future because younger people can't come, they can't afford to. But then when I learned about this previous practice from the 70s and 80s of young people just camping out on the grass, and could you imagine that happening now? And I think this is partly why base, this, this 24-hour experiment ha- has a significance because it, it is a space where you could, some of you actually did, you could sleep here overnight. It's, it's free lodging if you want it. Um, so, uh, and, and is that would that be possible now or has the, the sort of like... Um, cultural and political uh, 
climate of an older, more wealthier generation that doesn't want to have you know young people cluttering their idyllic postcard perfect landscape, uh, you know, impose too much of an influence that young people just don't have a place to situate themselves in this festival. So um, yeah, so so that and I don't even know if it was transgress considered transgressive at the time or just normal, but maybe. If, if we want to get to that point where young people can feel like this festival belongs to them and, and they can have the kind of experience that, that really inspires them and sustains them as like, you know, some of the best music festivals today, um, maybe we do need uh, to bring a, a certain degree of transgression into the space. Yeah. Well, um, I did want to ask you a question that I just privately wanted to ask you, but I think it's, it's a good, um, you know, uh, provocation as well uh you know you were one of the like early video essayists i would say in american film criticism who's re you know you you were really kind of pioneering that and you know made a name for yourself with that and inspired like a lot of others to do the same um what was the kind of response to the criticism community and the film and film culture at that point because i think you know it, it, that was a kind of different transition point too when mm -hmm. YouTube was becoming a thing. And right. I think this idea that even though film is a visual medium, but still the idea that you could... We've been talking a lot about cinema, right? This purest idea of cinema. But there's also purest idea of discourse, purest idea of criticism. Criticism has its own tradition. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious like what the response was and were you really considered a pioneer or were you a transgressor <laughs> you know were you a, a despoiler yeah of all of the above and it really depends <laughs> on who you ask so let's just run down that checklist uh -huh. so yeah certainly i i would i don't even know if i was one of the first but i kind of found um a foothold for myself in that in making my video essays it was also a vehicle for reaching out to my heroes in a way um, because I didn't consider myself qualified enough to be this voice of authority producing video essays that other people could could gain meaningful insights from. So I was, in the early days, I was actually providing a service. It's like, hey, I know how to cut video. I know how to take a footage from films and edit them to someone's insight. I'm just not sure if my insights are the ones they should be cut to. So I would reach out to people like Richard Brody, Roger Ebert, Matt Solder Seitz, um, at the end, I think I had about 20 or 25 different collaborators, each um, choosing a film to work on with me, and I would record their audio and then edit it. And so it was a way for me to uh, hone my craft in producing video essays, but also learn from my heroes and also form bonds, which proved to be really uh, essential, an essential lifesaver because two years into making video essays, my channel was shut down by YouTube because in one day they had changed their copyright policy because they were getting so much pressure from, from the uh, Hollywood uh, media content copyright holders. So they instituted a three strikes policy. If you had three videos that had copyrighted content, your, your account would be shut down. And I had had like you know, 50 videos already. Uh, so my account was shut down. But because I had these connections with... Um, with, with film critics who each had platforms, uh -huh. they, they rushed to my defense. And that actually gave me uh, a fair amount of notoriety. And I became, you know, sort of called celeb. Bandit. Yeah. And then that, that also attached me to the film critic community, uh, such as it was at the time. 
and then the film festival community. So it really put me on this trajectory of a certain sphere of, of cinema culture, uh, which I'm very happy to have been part of throughout. However, mm. um, I don't think I would be considered influential or, or significant to a majority of video essayists who, to, whether they've been kind of excluded from this, shall we say, exclusive or elite sphere of you know, highbrow uh, festival uh, oriented uh, critics, um, but they they kind of created communities of their own within YouTube, and so you have the YouTube video essay community, which I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, in many ways more influential than many film critics who we respect. Just Absolutely. I mean, you look yeah. at their followings, you look at their view counts, and their way of speaking is much more, you know, uh, down to earth, more relatable, um, yeah. you know, than than. Uh, the, the kind of criticism that we uh, appreciate. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. But in any case, here we are. <laughs> here we are, yeah. Uh, just a question about uh, I, the, the channel being shut down, but you had all the videos like on mm -hmm. a hard disk, so you didn't like, yeah. lose anything or get locked out of your own videos. And that's, well, okay, that leads to the question of, if we want to talk about attention, we want to also talk about... Yeah, the, I guess the archive, about obsolescence, about uh, what we produce and what value it has on an ongoing basis, the so-called long tail. Mm. Um, I think it also benefited me that, yeah, I, I saved everything I made and I kind of made a point that I was productive. Like in my bio, I, I would write, I've produced 350 video essays. And the fact of the matter is like a lot of video essays have made as many, if not more. It's just that I think maybe because I was one of the earlier people to do so, it still had a point of distinction. And that gives me mixed feelings about the current generation of critics and content producers. They're working their ass off probably harder than I was, but what what um, opportunities they have to really distinguish themselves amongst the field. Yeah. yeah. And again, this is really why you've stood out for me because you've really excelled as a podcaster. I don't know how many podcasters there are out there doing really um, intellectually nourishing, very rigorous podcasting on cinema. But um, yeah, such as it is, um, I'm, 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 as a fan of your podcast, I'm honored to be sharing the stage with you. Oh, thank you. A compliment to me is a good note to end on. <laughs> uh, but no, thanks, Kevin, for, you know, bringing me on and your kind words. And I think that you're, you know, you're, you're a pioneer, still a pioneer, the professor of the future of yeah. cinema, and we're all looking to you for, for direction. Oh, well, well, maybe we can end on a transgenerational note on that point, because I will say it's, it's never so fast to feel imminently obsolete as today. <laughs> the way that technology, like we were talking about creative destruction earlier, and technology is really the, uh, how do you say, the accelerator of, of existential obsolescence. And uh, if you look at TikTokers, they're just on a level of just how much effort and how much thought goes into these like six second videos sometimes yeah. just blows my mind. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So uh, if anything, I think it's more about redistributing expertise uh, beyond one single person in their job title, <laughs> at yeah. least. Uh, yeah, if, if I have any insight, it's really drawn from others and to be not extractive about it and to actually... Um, share and reflect that common contribution. And maybe that's the real good note to end on because really this event would not exist, would not have any meaning without your co-presence. And this reflects on 
the co-presence that's produced in the cinema screen, the, the cinema space as well, except that in the cinema, we don't see each other. We're all looking at in one direction, but here we have a chance to really see and acknowledge each other's presence and the contribution that presence produces. So give a hand to yourselves. <laughs> Yes, we are almost at the end of the 24-hour conversation on the future of attention. And um, we departed almost exactly um, 24 hours ago to think about a shift in attention, but also to experience it. And um, I'm thankful for everybody. So myself, having experienced most of the 24 hours myself as well, I'm uh, immensely grateful for everybody to be here and who has gone um, th who has gone through this conversation and this experiment with us. Um, as a film theorist, I was very glad that Hito talked about apparatus theory uh, in the end, because obviously this conversation also had quite an apparatus behind it. And um, I would really, really like to thank um, everybody who made um, the conversation possible. And most of all, I mean, we heard um, Devika, Milosh, Keshra, our host, we had the amazing speakers, but we also had uh, an amazing team um, behind the cameras, behind the microphones. And I'd like really everybody to come here, um, starting maybe with um, Francesco, who really made, made this possible. Nathan, please come also. Noemi, oh, please come to the stage. Everybody from the youth board, please come also. I mean, really. Alex, Simon, who were building the stage. Just to see how many faces were behind the stream. Um, who's, who else is there who I can't see right now? Yeah, the technicians, please come, come, come to us as well. <laughs> yes, please. So, please, um, thank you so much for the last 24 hours. I, I personally experienced a lot about different states of attention. I learned a lot about uh, attention and its infrastructures. And um, with this, I would like to close the 24-hour conversation. Um, I hope this um, is the spark for um, many other conversations. Uh, and a, a round of applause for Raphael. podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.